Welcome to the Solo 2.0 podcast, where two sisters, Jess and Rye, focused on health and hormone balance to help you step into that 2.0 version of you. Growing up, we heard all about hormones, sometimes more than we wanted, from our mom, who is a hormone health educator. As we got older, we rebelled and experienced our own health struggles and ups and downs. But today we have businesses helping people get in tune with their bodies, break free from restrictive eating and lifestyle habits, and learn how to balance their hormones naturally. So what can you expect from this podcast? Honest conversations and hot topics that should be more mainstream, like period health, cycle tracking, non-hormonal birth control, and our unique take on fad diets and trends that aren't always so supportive for women. Plus, interviews with health and wellness entrepreneurs making a big impact in the world. Ladies, it's time we align with our powers and redefine what healthy means to us. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the Solo 2.0 podcast. This is Ryan, co-founder of Your Hormone Balance, and I am usually joined by my sister, my co-host, Jess Sukan. She's a holistic health coach, but she couldn't make this interview, so I took it on solo and really enjoyed the chance to chat with Dr. Nathan Riley for a second time. If you missed our part one episode with him, I really encourage you to check it out. It was our last episode of 2020. 22, so December, if you want to scroll back. And we really did a deep dive into the flaws of our current medical system from his own experience and perspective as an OBGYN. Um, he spent many years in hospitals. And what was particularly eye-opening to me about that episode was learning about the financial incentives doctors are given to really push prescriptions like birth control and antidepressants and and also they're incentivized to do more surgeries and procedures, which makes so much sense when you kind of compare that understanding to the experience you get with a doctor and just helps you understand why things, sometimes the appointment goes the way that it does. So again, hope you listen to that or go back and listen if you haven't already. But moving on to this episode, we go all over again. And we cover more unconventional perspectives on pregnancy, fertility, and birth. And I just really enjoyed opening my mind in this conversation to different ways of experiencing pregnancy and birth. And I always love Dr. Nathan's passion and unique perspective. So more about Dr. Riley. He is a board-certified OBGYN and fellow ACOG who left the medical industrial complex due to due to his disillusionment with the standard of care within the conventional maternity care model. This was hard because going with the flow of hospital-based practice was providing him financial security. On the other hand, standing in his truth from having sat with over a thousand births and connecting with women and their families has provided him a lifestyle more in alignment with fatherhood, deepening his connection with his wife, and caring for people in the way that he had an that he had anticipated long before stepping into practice. By the way, I'm reading his full bio from his website because I think it really helps tell the story of who he is and and why he's doing the work he does today because I don't really get into all that again in this episode. So Dr. Riley now focuses his time on upholding the traditional practice of midwifery. He supports midwives as a collaborative physician in over 20 states. He's an advocate for home birth and still attends births for those in need. He boasts a C-section rate of less than 5%, which is one of the best in the U.S., Dr. Riley is the father of two, the second of whom was born at home, and he is proudly married to his high school sweetheart. Okay, briefly, what you can expect in this episode, we chat about male circumcision, the cons, the connection between C-sections and gut issues, the origin story of midwifery, and the benefits of home birth versus hospital birth. 
fertility optimization and egg freezing insights. I am about to freeze my eggs, so it's interesting to get his perspective. And factors impacting healthy sperm in men. We also talk about um, the same for women. And finally, we talk about Nathan's incredible new course, The Born Free Method, which you can check out at bornfreemethod.com. It's a 12-month mastermind for soon-to-be parents who want to feel empowered, confident, and informed about their pregnancy and childbirth journey. Um, And there is an emphasis on home birth. They're offering 10% off with code SOLO10, so check that out if you're interested. And definitely make sure to listen to the end. His adorable, beautiful, talented daughter got on the mic, and she blew me away with her cuteness. And final thought before we start the episode, I promise, Jess and I just wanted to say we respect and support every woman's right to choose whatever method for conception and birth feels right for them, for you. For example, for me, I don't think I'd be able to do a home birth. Um, I really love learning about it. It's so badass. Um, but you know, I doesn't mean I'm going to do it, but I think it's so cool to learn more about our options as women. And we are so grateful to Dr. Riley for helping us look at these topics in a new way and really open our minds. So we hope that it has the same effect for you. Enjoy this conversation and we will see you next time. All right, well, let's get right into it then. I want to start, especially because you've got this awesome new course, The Born Free Method, all about your unique take on pregnancy and birth, which is so radically different in many ways from the traditional Western model approach to pregnancy and birth. So I wanted to have you start by explaining what you see as some of the fundamental issues with how the traditional medical model approaches pregnancy in particular and then we can go to to home birth. But I know you've talked a lot about its emphasis on pregnancy almost as a disease. Mm-hmm. So I'd love for you to start there. Yeah, well, so you mentioned the born free method. Really what this, this is the, I don't know, I've been calling it like my magnum opus because it really allow, has allowed me to bring in every possible avenue through which I kind of view the pregnancy and the childbirth experience and the postpartum experience. But what I think is lacking, what we're trying to do with the born free method is to provide you with, uh, to fill the void really for even within the crunchy granola childbirth education space, which in some regards is also kind of lacking, um, in the same way that the medical industrial complex is lacking when you treat pregnancy as a disease. Your pregnancy is not like childbirth is not that moment when the baby comes out. That's actually the easy part. You've prepared, you go through this incredibly exalting, you know, tremendously powerful spiritual experience of having a baby. Then what? And what about those nine and a half months beforehand? Or what about the nine years beforehand that you were trying to get pregnant? What can be done in order for us to honor this process? That is what the born free method is, is it's acknowledging that this is not, yes, it's not a disease. And yes, birth is not a pregnant and medical procedure, but this is an incredible opportunity to get to know yourself better, to stand on your own two feet, and maybe even say no thanks to an intervention for the very first time. So what we were seeing out there was that I don't, there's some really great childbirth education programs that don't do, I think, a great job of diving into the research on what are the risks, benefits, alternatives to the vitamin K shot, for example. I'll spin on that a little bit just because that's a a common question I get. When a baby comes out of the vagina, 
uh, or out of out of the the abdomen for a C-section, universally we will inject a a shot of vitamin K into their heel. The idea being, as most people probably know, is vitamin K is an important cofactor for producing um, the clotting factors to prevent you from bleeding out of your blood vessels unnecessarily. So if a baby doesn't have enough vitamin K, then they can have a bleed in the brain. So as the baby's especially coming through the vaginal canal, the pelvis, we've got a little baby here with us. Oh no, uh, it's on uh, brand. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It wouldn't be the it wouldn't be uh, the born. We can't talk about birth and fertility and everything else if there aren't kids running around. So, um, so anyways, the risk of this of of bleeding inside the brain is one is about nine in a hundred thousand. So that is an, an extraordinarily low risk. In fact, you probably have a greater risk of getting sick going out to your local sushi restaurant today than you do of your baby spontaneously bleeding into the brain. However, if that were to happen, that would be catastrophic. So what does the medical system do? Just like with everything is we just treat everybody as a catastrophe around waiting around the corner and we just universalize every last thing. Uh Oh, did you lose my camera? Yeah. There you, there you are. go. Okay. Um, so the, with the vitamin K shot, I think it's important to understand, yeah, maybe there is a benefit. And of course, if you have that brain bleed, if you're one of those nine in a hundred thousand in the developed world, you might look back and say, what if we had done the vitamin K? But even with vitamin K, there's no guarantees in childbirth. And that's kind of like the big picture here is that you are going to be a um, a parent soon if you're pregnant or if you're hoping to be pregnant. And when you become a parent, there is no combination of three and four letter organizations, pastors, priests, mom and dad, politicians, legislators that can be a surrogate for your independence in decision-making as a parent. So this might be your first time where you're practicing really, really deciding for yourself because nobody can save you from those decisions. You still have to live with the outcomes of those decisions. And so with this vitamin K shot, you, you know, we decided not to do anything in pregnancy, especially the vitamin K shot, because that absolute risk was extremely low. Most childbirth education courses are saying, we don't, we don't support the shot. Well, it's not a matter of whether you not you support it or not. It's not your decision. It's this person and her partner's decision on behalf of their baby. Mm-hmm. So we try to bring in as much of that crunchy granola. There's all the coping strategies. There's a, quite a bit on the spirituality of this process, the archetypal transformation. There's a whole unit for dads. There's a whole unit on drugs, psychedelics, cannabis use. How can these tools actually help to um, benefit this pregnant this pregnancy experience and childbirth experience? I mean, so everything that you would expect to find in a childbirth education course, you're doing it. But then I also am a medical scientist. I have looked deep into all the research and I try to give people a fair sort of overview of what their options really look like for every intervention under the sun. Ultrasound is never mentioned. There are some important studies out of China that have showed that perhaps in utero exposure to this multiple ultrasound studies that we do in the United States might actually be problematic for behavioral issues for uh, the development of some of our, our our vital organs so i'll stop there do you have any <laughs> well have yeah any i was just thinking about medical interventions in general and so you're saying that by do you feel that by there are more potential risks by administering the vitamin k shot well, imagine that you are, have just emerged from this warm amniotic universe. You're about to see your mother for the first time. You've heard her voice. You've, you've felt her aorta. You're like intimately connected through oxytocin, the love hormone. And then moments afterwards, you're whisked away. Your, your cord is, is snapped, right? With scissors. You're dried off. They, they clean you off. They put a little cap on your head so that we, heaven forbid, we see your, your cone head. 
Um, we put goop in your eyes. Uh, you're cold as hell. All you want is to, is to be close to that of your mother's aorta again. And then we, then we pop a, a sharp thing in your foot. Maybe it's not a problem, but I would love to appreciate, you know, the, the one in a hundred trillion um, opportunity that you've, that your little soul has taken advantage of when you've chosen to come into the earth school. I'd like to believe that there's actually something more to this than, Hey, as long as the baby's alive, then we've done our job. And as we see the world, you know, really struggling with, with quite a number of things, you just tend to wonder what message do we, do we send to a little baby by, by inflicting pain moments upon arriving? What, what message do we, do we send to little boys when we're, you know, doing circumcisions on day one of life, which is universalized, nearly was universalized in the United States. We're not starting to see that trending downward. Um, what sort of messages are we sending there? And I think that that's actually where maternity care is probably going. It's just, I'm kind of pushing it. I'm nudging it hardly for <laughs> hard, hard forward in a, uh, hopefully in a positive direction. So you, so ultimately you're drawing the connection between the environment around how the baby is born and potentially how that baby turns out. So this is some sort of potential mild trauma, any yeah. of these sort of circumcision, I would assume maybe a C-section, any of these interventions that may not be necessary could essentially impact that baby in more ways than we know. Can you speak more about that? And also about um, the circum circumcision Mm -hmm. So uh, let's, I, I can answer that question through the lens of circumcision. I think this is a really important one and full disclosure to anybody out there in case you're wondering, yes, I'm circumcised. So I'm not saying this in, in, in hopes that people feel ashamed that they, that they were circumcised or whatever else. But apart from certain Muslim and Jewish um, traditions and communities, there's no country in the, on, on planet earth where the number of baby boys has been, uh, in favor, the, the proportion has been in favor of doing circumcision. It's had, it was nearly universal um, for decades. And just now we started to see a downtrend, you know? And um, the problem with this is, with this being the most common procedure performed in the United States still today, um, and we should call it a surgery because you use stainless steel and I use a scalpel. So I was also a doctor who did circumcisions when for four years while I was in residency. And um, it's important to remember like what we're doing here. We're, we're taking, we, we go and counsel our clients. I say clients because pregnant people are not sick. You're, you're people here that I'm, you're paying me to serve you. So my clients want to know what are the risks and benefits? Well, I was trained to say you have a decreased risk of HIV and STDs if you have a circumcised penis. It's cleaner and you have a lifetime decreased risk of penile cancer. The lifetime risk of penile cancer is like you, you're more likely to grow a penis out of your eyeball, you know, than get penile <laughs> cancer. So there's that's not all that great. And then if you actually look at the literature, which a lot of doctors maybe they don't have time, maybe they don't really have the you know care to do it. But if you look at the literature, when they they did these studies, they were so badly done. Um, and just to illustrate it, like a hundred people in this group had circumcision or are circumcised. A hundred people aren't circumcised. Let's look at their the next five years and see what our STI, ST, you know, sexually transmitted infection rate is. The group that wasn't circumcised had a lower STI infection rate, but they were also given far more sex education and condoms and everything else. It was like, 
it's written right in the study. And it's like, wait a second, I was counseling people based on this and I went further and further and I couldn't find any great reason to justify this, this cleanliness argument that people had made. Mm -hmm. So what we've left with is circumcision is a like cure looking for a disease. It's just not a really reasonable thing to do. And furthermore, and there's two more points I want to make. The second point is the glands of the penis, which is like the mushroom top of the penis is not meant to be exposed and being rubbed against rough underwear or jeans all the time. There's a, a foreskin that goes over top of it. And that foreskin protects that gland. Similarly to like little babies' hands and feet get re they're really, really soft. And then they start running around outside in the playground and their feet get rough. They get this, this sort of cratinization, as we call it. It's a thickening of the skin that happens on the penis as well. That decreases, you know, this, this sort of um, sensibility, the, the, the sort of sexual gratification we, we presume, um, which is the same as like your feet are sensitive and then you run around outside in the, in the woods for 10 years and your feet are less sensitive. It's just the way it goes. Mm. So it's possible given the number, the sheer number of nerve endings that are in that foreskin, it's possible that we're actually doing a disservice to the ability for these little boys when they grow up to be sexually active men to actually fully appreciate, um, you know, the sexual experience. You know, if you look at pornography nowadays, it's a lot of like bang, 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 bang versus maybe a more gentle, like loving kind of caress with the penis inside of the vagina because the foreskin is providing so much additional stimulation. I know you didn't realize this is where the interview oh, was going to no, go. It's okay. No, I, I've seen you yeah. talk about it on Instagram and I was very curious. So I'm happy we're talking about it. And well, I, you know, and I don't, I don't want to go like too far down because I have so many questions, but I'm also curious about, and I know this is a very controversial topic, but I was born via C-section and I have heard, and I've had gut issues my whole life, just to sh shift gears to another sort of medical sure. intervention that I think so much of what you talk about is again, radical responsibility, letting people know that you do have choices in these matters, even though they're so common, it is helpful, I think, to just have a unique look at, okay, it's common, but is it always absolutely necessary? And coming from someone who was born via C-section and has had gut issues my whole life, I have read that there's a lot of uh, research that shows that there is a connection between not being uh, born through the vagina versus C-section, not having the same immunities and strength. So have is that something that you're familiar with? And, and if so, can you explain? Yeah. So the gut, I mean, you guys work in, in hormone balancing and all that. The gut is, is critical. So before we can get into why a C-section might be uh, detrimental to the gut health, the gut, let's remember, is where 70 to 80% of your, your lymphatic tissue or your, your immune system lives in gut-associated lymphatic tissue. You've got a plethora of bacteria, protozoa perhaps, fungi all living in your guts in order to digest your food and help to transport that food into your bloodstream. It has to, you have to have this wall of an immune system here in order to prevent the, the stuff in the intestines from getting directly into the bloodstream. There's like a sorting process. Um, you also produce 95% of your serotonin in your intestinal lining. So when women are in birth control, for example, and their, their, you know, intestinal flora goes all out of whack, they have immune issues, they have mood and, and, and depression and anxiety disorders. And that's because of this intimate connection between the gut, your nervous system, your immune system, even your um, endocrine system. So having settled of that, where do we get all these bacteria? Well, the first thing is that your baby comes through the vagina and gets covered, covered in trillions of, of different um let's say thousands of strains of different bacteria 
maybe even some fungi. I mean, a whole bunch of stuff that is critical to its health, to that baby's health going forward. If you don't establish that healthy gut flora early on in life, um, which is best done by C-section and then furthermore through breastfeeding and not the overutilization of vaccines and antibiotics, this kid's going to have a far more robust way of showing up in the world from an immune standpoint, from a nutritional standpoint, from a nervous system standpoint. So with a C-section, we don't have the baby passing through there and getting close to the anus, the perineum, the vulva, all of those beautiful bugs don't get into the baby. So if you're out there and you had a C-section, don't feel bad. There are things that I've 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 started implementing in my practice, which is one is to put a sponge in the vagina, get it covered in the bacteria of the vagina. Hell no to the betadine, like like antiseptics in the vagina before birth. That used to be a thing, by the way, Ryan. Wow. <laughs> get all of those bugs and rub it all over your baby. I used to be people used to think I was I was nutso in residency because I read about this and I was trying to implement it in my program. It's so but smart. This is, this is this is what you can do. It's not you haven't like ruined your baby's life if you have a C-section. I want people to remember that. But there are other methods that we can do, and it, I think it is actually very critical to be to be talking about it. Okay, great, thank you. So you are a big advocate for midwi- midwifery. Did I say that right? Midwifery, you nailed it. Midwifery. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I shouldn't have questioned myself. And I want you to just explain how that differs from you know, I guess just going, well, you can have a midwife and go to a hospital, you know, and have a whole team. So first, just can you explain why you're such an advocate for midwifery and home births, which go two and two go together? Yeah, I was just interviewed by a uh, a black woman from, um, she's from Nigeria. And she, in our conversation went on and took all these crazy turns and turns out that she had four hospital births and two home births. And we were talking about midwifery and she said, well, why don't you go to midwifery school? Because you sound like you really like it. And I said, or, or why, why not? Or do you call yourself a midwife is what she asked. And I said, I wouldn't dare because the lineage, this ancestral wisdom that has been passed down through multiple generations, largely through the, uh, the African diaspora, the Polynesian and Southeast Asian, this diaspora, even Russia, Eastern Europe, all of Europe, there has been a passing down of uh, of insights, empirical evidence from women who have cared for women. Call them midwives, call them just really good friends. It doesn't really matter. Women have been carrying this forward. And if we look back into the sort of earliest written human history, I think I went into a little bit a little bit into this in our first interview. So I won't I won't you know belabor this, but you see that women have always cared for women in childbirth, even when the white ruling elites in Europe tried to extinguish women from the healing professions, there were there was there was still this tradition of women caring for women that has been passed down. And so the disenfranchised poor women in these feudalistic societies were still going to their local midwife or call it what you will. And those midwives um, have continued to pass this knowledge down in the United States. Now not every midwife is the same, nor is every doctor the same. But when um, when you ask like why is this important, it's because it's because they do it better. They do it better. An OBGYN is an expert in two things: surgery. We are great at doing surgery. We are awesome at C sections. If you need those things, go to an OBGYN. A midwife isn't going to do that for you. But for eighty five percent of women, which is my estimate as to the number of women who probably are totally fine giving you know having vaginal birth. Going to a midwife is 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 probably going to get you the better a better result because they're not surgeons. And the other thing OBGYNs are really specialized in is taking care of sick people in pregnancy. And if you have a normal pregnancy, 
like I assume you and your sister will someday if you guys go that route, mm-hmm. you probably don't need an OBGYN. I mean, I'd be happy to be your doctor because I do practice like a midwife, yeah. but um, OBGYNs are very, very limited in their in their abilities to attend to a birth without intervening. In fact, having a hospital birth is naturally already there's intervention because there's so many disruptions, so many disturbances. You activate that cerebral cortex, you get your catecholamines flooding, and now you're in this flight or fight space because people are asking you things left and right about what you want or don't want, and they're pressing you to do things that maybe you don't feel called to do, and your intuition's being dismissed altogether. That in and of itself is an intervention. So the home birth with a midwife is is a growing trend. It's still not the majority by any stretch, but that is the model that I want to see become the default in the United States. It, it is the default for many women in places like Europe. Mm. So what can you also explain the difference between a midwife and a doula? Because that's another sort of profession that we're hearing a lot more about. So there's no hierarchy here. So let's bear all, everybody bear that in mind. But if you were to put five people around a table, you have your OBGYN who has the expertise that I described. You have a certified nurse midwife over here who is, I hate to say it, but they're kind of like a diluted obstetrician that doesn't have the surgical skills. Um, it's just the way that CNMs are trained. People can, you know, can send me hate mail or whatever. That's just the way it goes. And there aren't too many people that are going to disagree with me. Then you have the, a variety of different other types of midwives that are sitting around the table. They're usually direct entry midwives, meaning they've done apprenticeship, um, or they've actually gone to like get a master's, you know, in midwifery. I mean, there's a whole bunch of ways you can do it, but those are generally the types of midwives that are attending home births. And then you have like a childbirth educator and you have your doula. They all serve different roles. The doula is really your best friend and support person that you can be equally as happy with in a moment or raging at in another moment. And they're just going to love you through that. That is your person to lean on. That is the fourth leg of the chair as you're trying to get yourself through this challenging experience. Doulas are great advocates. They tend to have a little bit of insights into risks risks and benefits, but they're generally prohibited from giving medical advice. Otherwise they'd be you know, they could be accused of practicing medicine without a license, but they're great for support. They're great for coping techniques. They're great for, you know, helping you with meal prep. I mean, they're, they're really your, your, your right hand man or woman. They're mostly women <laughs> um, throughout the whole experience. Okay. So then that might be why it's more common to maybe have a doula come with you to, you know, I've had a lot of friends recently that have a doula that came with them to their hospital birth, but it right. sounds like a midwife is traditionally actually sort of running the home birth. That's right. Yeah, that's so, right. And well, well, uh, a midwife is, so the hospital-based midwives, the CNMs, the certified nurse midwives, and by the way, I know I threw some shade that way. I've got at least two dozen very, very good friends and collaborating midwives that I work with that are awesome. They are generally going to be working in the hospital setting. Some of them work in the home setting. They can do a great job. Um, the the midwives at home may are going to be kind of doing similar work. They kind of have a different way of approaching birth than than the certified nurse midwives. A doula can go in any of those environments. You can bring a doula to the hospital, to a birth center, to your home birth. Um, they might even be sort of peripherally involved if you have a free birth, which is when you have no birth attendant who's actually helping you with the medical stuff. Okay, so I know you've mentioned it here and there, but to really hone in on the benefits of why, why would we choose a home birth? We, we know there's interventions at the hospital, but 
you know, so many women are afraid of that idea of a home birth and not having, what if something does go wrong? So can you really touch on the benefits? I think most people are worried that their baby's going to die. And the likelihood of your baby dying in childbirth is infinitesimally small. And in some regards, the likelihood of something bad happening to your baby actually goes up when you're in the hospital. I know that that sounds crazy to say, but that cascade of interventions that you that you mentioned, that actually can lead to some pretty catastrophic things happening. I've seen it happen. Mm-hmm. Usually, when we start to detect that that catastrophic thing is happening as a result of something that we've done to intervene, we jump in and we say, look, thank God you were in the hospital. And a lot of people through the lens of the media and their friends, and they hear the horror stories on you know TikTok or whatever, they're actually, um, those negative things stand out and they're like, gosh, I just want to be in the hospital because I don't want that terrible thing to happen. The, 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 the good news around home birth is that if you have a midwife there, a midwife is even better at resuscitating your baby than most doctors are. Way better than me. I'm, I'm willing to admit that. Oh. These midwives are going to regular trainings on neonatal resuscitation. We take it and we're like, There's, we're in the hospital. There's going to be other people that can do this better than us. Who cares? But if you're in the home environment like me or the, a lot of the home birth midwives, we are training and in, in drilling on this over and over so that if something bad happens to your baby, we're going to know exactly what to do. And if we need help, we know when to call 911. That's really, that's really the environment. Now, the other major things to worry about in pregnancy, of course, I'll just list two, bleeding out, like lots of blood um, and uh, high blood pressure is leading to things like stroke. If you have somebody who's checking your blood pressures routinely, the stroke thing is probably not an issue. But if they do, if you do start having those super high pressures, your midwife is going to know, hey, I think it's time to go to the hospital. This is scary high. If you bleed out inside your brain, that's not going to make you a very, you're not going to be able to take care of your kids. You're going to be perhaps even sort of in a vegetative state for the rest of your life. So let's go to the hospital. The other one is um, for the blood for the for the bleeding. We have plenty of tools we just carry with us. It's the same medications that we use in the hospital. The only thing we can't do is surgical intervention. And and if it gets to the point where you've gone down your list of possible remediations for a heavy bleeding at home, which your midwife is going to be completely comfortable with, then we just transfer and we may have to rush you there and get you some blood and whatnot. But that's that again is is the the exception, not the rule. So most home births go completely smoothly and they're very quick. They're, there's no sutures needed. I mean, most people who have home births have a very, very easy experience. And then occasionally, just like in a hospital, you have something bad happen. And that's when we need to go to the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. So ideally you would be at least near one, but um, it sounds like that is rare that that, that you need to go. So uh, what would be the the benefits as well? And I realized a follow-up question I didn't ask about C-section would be um well first i just want you to to go over the, the benefits for the mother in in an environment uh, being at home um how how you see maybe there do you is there research or any evidence of how the child turns out as a result of a home birth versus the hospital experience and or the experience for the mother mentally perhaps after the birth most people, and so when, when people come to me and they want me to attend their birth, I will actually decline being their doctor if they haven't taken care of themselves. So those controllable lifestyle factors, especially if you're like a white person who has a steady job and has a, a, like an, a ton of money, if you're not eating well, moving well, sleeping well, you're not managing your stress, if you're not nesting in and really kind of dialing in those things that you can um, impact, I will just say no. Like, I'm sorry, like you are setting this up for a bad outcome. People who 
really, really dial in their, their nutrition. They work with people like you who are, you know, functionally kind of aware of how nutrients and vitamins kind of work within the body. Those are the people that I, I'm happy to attend at home birth. And I will say that most people who want to have a home birth, they've already accepted the responsibility for that. I'm going to do the best with my resources and time to make myself and keep my baby as healthy as possible. So having said that, that would actually translate to a healthier child, a healthier in utero exposure to nutrients and everything else. We do not absolutely have any data that would say that like a baby born at home is going to be a Harvard grad versus a, a C-section baby is going to have to, you know, deal with Boston University or something, you know, <laughs> sorry, Boston. Um, but, you know, the, the point being that I, I think, I think a big overarching um, piece of advice I give for anybody is the most important um, way to think about where to have a baby and who you want to attend your birth is who makes you feel most seen, most cared for. Where do you feel safest? Where do you feel the most cozy? If you feel like you you feel compelled to have a home birth, but deep inside you're like, I'm afraid, that's not going to go well. You need to go wherever it is that you're feeling is the best place for you. That might be hospital, could be a, a birth center, could be a home, it could be out in like the ocean with dolphins. Wherever you feel called to do it, that's actually going to be the best the best approach for you because remember the hormones that drive this whole process specifically oxytocin, the love hormone, this chemical, it's a neurotransmitter, neurotransmitter and a hormone. It governs over your, it, it governs over um, e ejaculation, conception, the surges, those painful surges, the ejection of the baby when the baby is born, the milk letdown. It also connects you to your baby. This oxytocin molecule um, is so important for a natural sort of the physiology of birth, if you will. And if you have catecholamines, epinephrine, norepinephrine surging, it will suppress the activities of the love hormone and you won't get a normal sort of course in your birth. So if you are in a space where you don't feel safe or seen, you need to go and find that place. And that's why mammals out in the wild, they'll do that. They'll go and find a different pasture to lay down in um, because they heard rustling in the woods. Like, I don't want my baby to come out here. This is scary. So labor stops, they run a couple hundred yards in the other direction, and then they can squat down and let labor resume. Mm. So you need to really, really kind of do that internal work. And that's a big part of the born free method is like the exercises. Where do you want to have a baby? Where do, like you close your eyes, you feel, are you getting a hell yes to home birth? Or are you getting a fuck? No, those are important. That intuition is authoritative knowledge. So being where you are most comfortable, calm, we know the, the, catastrophic effects of too much stress on your hormones and your health, all of that. So that does play a huge role. So that's really important for people to think about. Also, what about water birth? Um, I, I had a friend recently who did, who had a bath at, even having a hospital birth, there was an option to like get into a bath. Is that a part of, if you could talk about that for both hospital and home births, um, how does that assist in the pregnancy process? Or the big part of the yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, and just the get in the birth process, I mean. Yeah, I mean, it, the number one thing is that it feels nice to sit in a warm tub of water, you okay. know, versus, you know, I don't know if anybody listening, if you've, if you've laid in a hospital bed, they're pretty uncomfortable. So you're about to have a baby and you're like trying to get your hips situated, you know, it, it may be that that um, you get an epidural because the the bed itself is so uncomfortable and they won't let you come off the monitors, right? So 
at home or in the hospital, you can sit in your tub and just chill. Like, honey, bring me this. Like, can you light, light a candle over here? Can you put the diffuser on? Can you change the music track? You're in your space. Your eyes are closed. You're not engaging your, your five senses. You're just kind of being, being still and going inward. That's the one big thing. The other thing is that it actually helps that relaxation helps to open up the pelvis. Um, and and helps to just facilitate the baby coming through the the easiest birth, including my own my own my wife's birth, our second at home. We didn't even make it to the to the birth tub. We were doing this this breath work practice as soon as her waters opened, and the baby just emerged. Wow! And that was, that was a result of her just being so grounded and so relaxed mm. that um, you know I I can never say you know what she felt. You know there was an experience there for her, but contrasted with the hospital experience, which was also unmedicated, undisturbed or whatever. We had a great OB, by the way. Um, she just felt like it was almost healing for her. It, it, it just really felt, she just felt so good about it. It was, and it was over so quickly. It was such an unremarkable birth. And, and, you know, when we, when we're thinking about all the bad stuff that happens, like, let's remember that women out there give birth like that. They have for thousands of years, but we've only studied that one in a thousand, that bad outcome or this bad outcome. We only study when bad things happen as opposed to studying why does it go so well for so many other women. So for, sorry, I just lost what I was going to ask. Um, so I guess back to my question about, can you have the water birth in a hospital? Is that common to have that option? By the way, it sounds lovely to well, be in that. In the hospital, they I have never heard of them actually permitting the baby being born. Like they're never going to say you can have the baby in the tub. I've, I, I don't think I've ever heard of that in a hospital in birth centers. Yes. And home. Yes. Um, and the only, the only consideration there is that when the baby comes out, the baby, as long as the baby's underwater, the baby doesn't even take a deep breath. The baby takes a deep breath once oxygen is available. So the baby, once the baby is up out of the water, <gasps> That happens. And if the baby gets plunked back down in, the baby can drown, but the baby won't drown as because <laughs> the baby's going from a, an, like a, a, an oxygen free environment to an oxygen free environment in the water. It's actually a, a pretty, pretty unusual. So the thing that people are worried about is, oh, the baby might swallow water. The baby doesn't even open its mouth and eyes while it's under the water. The baby is submerged. It's as if it's still in the, am the amniotic universe of the, of the womb. It's really kind of interesting. Yeah. Actually, that just reminds me. I was chatting with a friend who had uh, her first swim lesson with her new baby. And she was just telling me about how he just did so well. And, and I was wondering how funny of a concept that we just dunk the babies in when they're so young into the water for these swim lessons, but that's gotta be, there's gotta be something about it being familiar to them from being yeah. inside the womb. <laughs> like, it's like you're yeah, swimming. Totally. So, totally. It's the same yeah. thing. Yeah, what we what we do for our kids is we just blow on their face like you just go and they go you know and then when they go you just dunk them in and then they come back up and they're they're fine they haven't swallowed a bunch of water maybe they did swallow a little bit of water but like who hasn't swallowed fine yeah. yeah so i remember what my my question was going to be so are there significant is there a way to compare about how long a, a traditional hospital birth takes i know it can vary quite a bit and how long a home birth takes can it be yeah, faster really, easier really good question um i think that there are far more variables at play than 
uh, than meets the eye. So the first thing, of course, we've talked about those disturbances can slow down, stall the labor altogether um, in the hospital environment, but that can also happen at home. You know, you could, you could love your midwife. And then at the last minute, when you're in your birthing, your midwife is like panicking and is actually making you scared as well. That's why it's really important to really know like who this person is that you're, you're, you're honoring with this privilege of attending your birth. Also in the hospital, a lot of births are induced, like meaning we try to get the labor going early. So there, when we induce labor, the labor tends to be a lot longer because the body's not ready. We have to like prepare it with certain, um, uh, cytokines they're like prostaglandins you know you pop them in the vagina in the cheek it's supposed to get the cervix ripened and soft and maybe stretchy a little bit and then it, there may be some feedback to the brain that gets the brain producing some oxytocin releasing it from the pituitary that may take a whole extra day so i, I it's kind of like comparing oranges to apples what i will say is that when you go into spontaneous labor it will generally go faster the less time that you're in the hospital. In fact, I always tell women, don't go until the very last minute. That's what I tell people because naturally all the disturbances and distractions will inevitably slow down the labor. Um, and then there's some women who just have fast labors. There's some women who have just really drawn out 36 hours labor, uh, 36 hour labors. I guess my wife kind of falls into the former <laughs> where we've had two very, very quick very, yeah. very quick bursts. But she also took very, very good care of herself. So if you're interested in having a shorter um, you know, quote, easier experience. Although I don't know if it's fair to say any birth is easy because it's a spiritual transformation. There's nothing very easy about that. Mm -hmm. But from the medical sort of measurable standpoint, I would say that um, as long as you're, you know, if you're taking care of yourself, if you're moving well, eating well, um, your your nutrition's dialed in, your sleep is dialed in, you're, you're meditating, you're connected to your partner, you're probably going to have an easier experience than anybody else, regardless of wherever you have your baby. Okay, great. Well, that is a perfect segue into what I wanted to talk about, which was your suggestions for couples looking to get pregnant. And and you just listed off some of the most important elements, but how far in advance of trying to get pregnant, or in my case, egg freezing, do you suggest really diving into these modifications? I, if you're going to freeze your eggs, I would I would recommend tr you know getting onto a very very regimented sort of lifestyle um, program. Let's just call it a lifestyle program because there's there's so many different shades of this. Probably seventy five days minimum. I'd say one hundred twenty days is probably the best. You know, we're looking at four months of really dying in your health. You're going to have the the greatest likelihood that those eggs are going to have the highest integrity when you are ready to have them meet a sperm and be transplanted into the uterus. We don't have a lot of hard data that says that this nutrient is the way to keep your eggs healthy. It's just like when people say, improve your egg health with this supplement, like they're full of shit. There's, it's not, it's way too complicated than that. Mm -hmm. There are so many weird things that happen with egg meeting sperm. And I'll, I'll give you an example. The egg, by the way, is this giant vacuolated cell. It's actually visible with the, with the naked eye. It's the only human cell that's visible with the naked eye. So you could hold one on your on your on your fingernail, like it's not that big, but you could see it. It's like, oh my god, there's that cell. That's the ovum. That's the egg that is going to to be met with a sperm and grow into a baby. The sperm are microscopic. They are tiny. They're like it's like the Earth next to the sun. It is crazy how small they are. It's not. They're not that small. They're actually you can you can't see them with the naked eye, but they're that you know when you see an ovum under a microscope and they're doing the IVF procedure where sperm meets egg. You can actually see the sperm all starting to line themselves up around this this egg, 
And something funny happens. The egg starts spinning counterclockwise. I don't understand why this happens, but there's this incredible dance. And I wonder if the, the spinning actually puts like, you know, like when you're on like the like a, a fast spinning ride at the amusement park, if it puts like pressure out towards the side, sort of like a, a centrifugal, um, that'd be a centripetal force that you're sort of experiencing. No, it'd be centrifugal, a centrifugal force to the outside in order to like counterbalance these sperm that are banging against the the sides of the egg. I don't know. But when you when you start to like really kind of unpack what the hell is happening here with this conception thing, it is not a matter of like, you need more magnesium. Like anybody out there who's doing that is doing people a disservice. So we have to really dial in everything for ideally 120 days before you have your eggs freeze. Or if you are going to go the IVF route, like you're just going to have your eggs harvested. I always tell people, join my program way before then. I want some time to work with you to get your physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual well-being dialed in so that not only do you have the best chance of conceiving naturally and saving yourself, maybe I just saved a, a couple, um, 18 grand in their city. That was the IVF um, estimate that they got. And they got pregnant through my my fertility program. Oh. Um, well, I saved them 12 grand, the difference. But anyways, the... <laughs> He, yeah, if you're going to do the IVF thing, you may be able to dodge that if you have a practitioner that's really thoughtful about these things. Or if you do the IVF route, great. IVF is an independent risk factor for a variety of pregnancy complications, generally because we haven't looked upstream at any other health issues you have going on that have been contributing to your miscarriages or your fertility challenges. So yeah. it's dialable in, and now you have the greatest chance of that money being invested and in, in resulting in a live birth in nine and a half months. Can, can you clarify here because you're saying, you know, people that are selling supplements are saying like you can improve your egg quality. That's a scam, but there's quite a difference between focusing on like natural ways to ensure that you're ovulating, for example, right? So because if you're not ovulating, you're going to have a really difficult time getting pregnant. And of course we know these many natural ways to improve ovulation, so, so those are two different things, right? Or because I, I assume what you teach and work with people on are all of these things that can support regular ovulation. Yeah, what, what I mean by that, that's a really good point to clarify. It's not like like anybody who's selling you that single like chlorella or spirulina is the the answer. It's not. It's never going to be a single silver bullet that fixes everything. There are far too many moving parts. So. Um, we also have the man, the men, 40 to 50% of the time, it's their sperm, their motility, the, the morphology, you know, that, which is how they're shaped. How many of them are there? What's the volume of the semen? Is there inflammation in the, in the genitourinary tract? And you can see leukocytes, you can see blood cells microscopically on a semen analysis. That's all signs that you have some sort of underlying inflammation, which by the way, it might be related back to your gut. So on the female side, you've got an ovary, you've got the quality of the eggs, you have the follicle, you have various cells within the follicle. You have your age, which is going to be reflected in how those chromosomes are interacting within that oocyte. How many eggs are there per ovary on each cycle? Um, do you have this really delicate, uh, you know, ballet of FSH, LH, progesterone, estrogen, not to mention about a thousand other hormones that are actually related to the endocrine system who are helping to make sure that you're having 13 ovulations per year? And then you've got the tube. You've got little cilia. How are those moving to move the, the egg through the tube? When you're um, having sex, are you orgasming? Orgasm actually will cause a quivering of the lower part of the uterus to bring the sperm up towards the openings of the fallopian tubes. Is there something inside the lining of the uterus? Is the wall, the muscle within the uterus, is there some disruption there? 
the body wants to get pregnant. The body wants to heal, but we have to provide the resources and we can't look at it as a, like, this is the single solution for every single person. It really, really requires a personalized approach. It may require some functional medicine. It may require you to go on an elimination diet. It may require that you guys, um, just have better sex. Like it might require that you guys have fun again, having sex. And a big part of what I do is I have a 10 day, 10 day connection challenge where you're slow dancing. You're not even slow dancing. You're just dancing, just dance together in the same room to a favorite song. One day is like genital massage. Like you're just going to touch each other through your clothes. No orgasm allowed unless you can't help it. You know, that type of thing. Like we have to get back to what this is. You are not just egg meeting sperm. And then it welcome the baby. There's an invitation to the spirit of the baby. And that's where conscious conception and everything comes into play. Mm. So there's far more to this. That's what I'm trying to emphasize than yeah. just that magic pill that is going to just make you pregnant somehow. Yeah. And there's, wow. I mean, I've never heard it explained in that way. All the different parts and pieces that go into getting pregnant. It is more than just ovulation. It is more than just egg quality. But I think your average person, because I work in this field and we talk about hormones all the time, but going through this egg freezing process, I'm like, what? I, I've just been so confused about the elements and I've been feeling so stupid because I'm like, I should know more about this, but it's actually not something I've ever had to learn this much about. And the clinic doesn't really educate. You know, we have a call with the doctor and she's like going so in depth about all these things. And I, all I want is like a PowerPoint presentation that she'll send me afterwards that I can then study because it's just so much information and timelines and medication and like, you know, and then of course she's saying, you don't really need to adjust, you know, anything about, and I know egg freezing is different from just traditional way of getting pregnant because they're going to give me injections to make right. multiple eggs grow at one time, which does not happen in your standard cycle when, if you're ovulating, one egg would be released, you know, ideally. So that, that's the other thing where I'm like, wait, so, you know, they never talk about it, it doesn't sound like you, because I regularly ovulate because I'm tracking and all, I know those things, but for people that aren't ovulating, like th there's no mention, it, like, is that helpful for egg freezing too? If your cycle is regular, if you, you know, do you know about that? That was just one side question that I had. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think we know anything about this process. Like, I don't think we really have any fucking idea. Pardon my French. I think that the reason that we have a $4 billion assisted reproductive technologies industry in the United States alone is reflective of our inability or unwillingness to be curious about the process and to really investigate it. Because there is, I don't think it's conspiratorial. I just think it's far easier uh, it's going to come at a big, big cost to you, but it's far easier for us to just hijack the entire system in order to make it do something that it otherwise, for whatever reason, isn't willing to do. Or you're maybe just not ready and you want to save your fret, your 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 eggs frozen in the metaphase at, how old are you, Ryan? I'm 34. So at 34 versus 44, right? Like, I think that's reasonable, um, especially as we're trying to get pregnant later and later. And until you have found that match and you're ready to invite the, soul, the spirit of that baby in, the soul of that baby in, um, perhaps there is a good use of these technologies. But because it is such an easy, just, just, you know, you've been having sex for a year. Okay. Let's just get you to the RAI clinic. Before you know it, you're looking at a $12,000 bill for IVF. That's not how most people want to do it, mm -hmm. but it's so much easier. And it's like, it's $12,000. I'll get that money back someday and we'll have a baby. We've always wanted a baby. So due to the, the ease at which these um, technologies and procedures have been made to the general population, 
many of us, even in the medical community are like, well, heck, why even investigate that? We know that this works. Let's do it. Well, what if there's to this, what if there's more to this whole thing than this whole, like making a baby than egg meets sperm. And that's where I, I really do feel like for people who are thoughtful about egg freezing or sperm, you know, cryo, whatever they call it for, I guess it's freezing as well. If you're interested in doing that, remember that it's still not a surrogate for this incredible union of the of the yin represented by this giant vacuolated cell, the ovum, and the yang, this very hypervigilant little sperm meeting. There's this spark, like an explosion, it's a zinc-driven, magnesium-driven explosion when they meet. And then somehow it turns into this fourfold human being with a physical, etheric, astral, and I, and an ego in the future. I mean, like there's something so magical about that. And I just I, I always try to impress upon people that you're kind of paying what you, you're getting what you pay for. Um, this could be a spiritual opportunity. This could be an exercise for you. And perhaps even when you're 44, you could still have a normal baby. Or we can go this medical route and there may be some consequences to that, but we don't know. We don't know what it's going to feel like for you. We don't know how you're going to look back on that experience. Um, there's not a right answer here, but I think that there's a whole bunch of unknowns that we've kind of bypassed. Um, and that's where my curiosity kind of lies. Yeah. Just because, well, we're, we're also doing it. I mean, I've been with my partner for 13 years and we're just not ready yet, but his work offers it. So it's completely covered. So this is sort of our, uh, meet in the mid, this is sort of our meet in the middle of, okay, well, this is covered and this is our insurance. If we can't get pregnant, you know, a few years from now, but my mom had me at 41 and she had my sister at 37. I might've mentioned that before. So I, I don't feel like it's not possible, but it feels really nice to have this insurance, I guess. And then, you know, the, the sort of the testing around it. And, um, I I'm going to botch the name of the genetic testing of the embryos. Um, but like a fish, fish analysis. Uh, let's see. I had a note on it. Um, it's like a fluoro immuno something or other. I don't know. It's a long name. Pre implantation genetic testing. So that's sort of like genetic testing done on the embryos before you get pregnant. Yeah, that's that's like the fish analysis. So what they okay. do is they look for all sorts of little snippets of different genes that might suggest certain things for the future of this baby's life, mm-hmm. um, which is nice. I mean, there, there's there's something nice about that. I I do feel like it's kind of a slippery slope for us as a society. You know, you saw those like weirdo kind of. Um, videos where there's like baby incubators it looks almost like the matrix where they're growing humans mm. it's like this is the future and it sounds so like aldous huxley like brave new world to me yeah uh, so you know i don't think it's a problem i i think my wife and i probably wouldn't have taken that approach just yeah. because it's so hard on i think partners to to be faced with like this is the only option and it doesn't feel very much the way that they imagined having kids um but there's no right answer for anybody. It's whatever you feel is best for you. I think there's plenty of people out there to support you. And I, I support a lot of people through IVF. I just don't do the IVF procedures myself. Yeah. And it makes sense. I mean, it's not exactly in full alignment with your beliefs in this natural spiritual process as it's meant to be. So I understand that. But um, <laughs> back, what was that? A little off brand for me. <laughs> it, is, it, it is. It is. So I understand. But I was very curious about your... Um, fertility, 
fertility optimizing suggestions in particular for, for men. I think we, we've talked about it on this podcast. We talk about it through your hormone balance, how, you know, how women can optimize their fertility or have, you know, regular ovulation, but men are so often left out of this conversation. And Thomas, my fiance has really like done all this research and, you know, has stopped drinking and stopped weed, which was a big one for him. Um, because of of how it can impact the sperm quality. And then there's less evidence around, it seems, around how it actually can impact the baby, like the genetics of the baby. But it seems like there's actually some evidence that it can. So it seems like there's a lot more, there should be a lot more emphasis on what the men are doing. Um, because it's like we have follicle, the same follicles from birth. Yeah, right. Yeah, the the men, forty to fifty percent of the time, it's due to them. And if you look at like when a normal range for sperm counts or their motility, which is how they swim, or the morphology, which is how they sh they're shaped, if you look at the normal range, it's like I can't remember the last one I reviewed. It was like it it was like anybody's going to fall in the normal range. If you fall below that, you're like almost like sterile. So when the when the doctor says, uh, "Hey, you you've got a normal semen analysis," and we just brush it aside. My question is, could we make that semen analysis, albeit within the normal range, could we make those parameters better? And so <clears throat> the answer, of course, is yes. It's a rhetorical question because everybody can make theirs better. We used to, we've seen declining um, fertility rates and, and sperm count rates and motility rates for this past several decades, ever since like World War II. And nobody's really, everybody's like, oh, we don't know why. Like, are you sure guys, you don't know why? Like, are you guys all sure you don't know why? Our, our, our gametes, our, our sperm cells are not developing well. The first thing is we carry a cell phone in our pocket that has four very powerful modems in it, and it's sitting centimeters from our nuts. <laughs> we are doing prolonged sauna sessions. We are wearing tighter underwear. We're on our bikes. We're pushing ourselves to the limits. Our adrenals are spent. We're not sleeping enough. Our nutritional um, are, 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 we're all malnourished, you know, compared to what we were 50 years ago. Um, and that's because the soils are all deplete of, of nutrients using, you know, synthetic fertilizers actually, um, prohibits the ability for the plants that we're eating from to, to, you know, take in nitrogen and whatnot from the soils. We don't have a very nourishing, um, agricultural system, especially in the United States. Combine all of those things and you end up with a population where the men's sperm count and motility is, is rapidly declining. So what you can do is lose the cell phone. If you live near a cell phone tower, you got to figure that out. Like, I don't care what anybody says, 5G is not doing anything great for our health. Um, turn off your Wi-Fi router at night, work on sleep hygiene. Um, I had to lose the bike shorts. And by the way, everybody, I, I had low sperm motility and I had to fix it. So I lost the cell phone, put it on airplane mode if you have to have it on your body. Um, stopped wearing bike shorts, stopped wearing underwear altogether. I won't even get into that story. There's some funny things that happened there um, where I found myself in a bit of a pickle. Um, uh, like you should finish that story. <laughs> <laughs> well, I went to a doctor to see if I had a hernia and he was like, okay, well, drop your pants. And I thought he was going to give me time to like put a gown on or something. And I just dropped them and I had no underwear. And he was like, oh. Like it was just this very <laughs> awkward pause amongst other stories I won't get into. But um, so 
so doing all of those things is really helpful. And of course, getting the adequate nutrition. I tell everybody there's five multivitamins provided by nature, organ meats, um, you've got uh, bone broth, eggs, fermented cod liver oil, and you've got bivalve shellfish. Bivalve shellfish, like oysters and mussels, are no, are, have always been known to be aphrodisiacs. They have all of the nutrition in order to produce healthy, copious numbers of healthy, um, strong swimming sperm. So we're talking about zinc, molybdenum, selenium, the omega-3 fatty acids, um, magnesium. I mean, everything that you can find in oysters and specifically organ, organ meats and oysters. Um, and then if you wanted to add a fish oil or something like that, you can also add some CoQ10, especially if you're a little bit older. If you're on testosterone or any other hormone replacement, get off of it. It's not helping you develop healthy sperm, especially if you're on TRT. Everybody now my age and, and above, I'm 38, is on TRT now. It's this like new rage. You are you are getting, your, your testicles are shriveling up faster than you know. And um, the cannabis is a great thing. The alcohol is a great thing. All of these things- out. Completely Say that take, again. To completely take out alcohol and weed. I, I think with reason. Yeah. I mean, I, I would, if I was worried about being able to conceive naturally, I'd be cutting it out and really dialing it in. And I'd go on to an elimination diet as well in order to, to re-nurture my gut, which I know you're very familiar with, but if you're eating a bunch of vegetable oils, gluten and other wheat, um, proteins, if you're eating a lot of grains, um, you're eating a lot of dairy, processed sugar. I mean, all the stuff that you probably know you shouldn't be eating, get rid of that stuff. It's going to help to rebalance that flora in your guts and you and your partner can do it together. It's going to be better for your baby for the reasons we've already described, but it may also help to repopulate all of your orifices with the right bacteria, decrease whatever autoimmune mediated or otherwise non-immune mediated reactions you're having to food decreasing total systemic inflammation and allowing your epididymis and the other parts of your within your 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 scrotum to actually start working again so that you're able to procreate. If we can't procreate guys, there's some reason. Like it's a signal from beyond that you've got to dial in your health. Mm. So I, I I could go on and on about that one. <laughs> yeah. Well I mean I wish we had more time. Um I know in your new course one of the things that stuck out to me for women in pregnancy was that it seems that you're saying that a little bit of cannabis and psychedelics is actually okay? I'm not saying it's okay. I'm okay. saying that from what we, from the data that I have gathered, there does not seem to be any demonstrable downside to using psilocybin mushrooms or cannabis in pregnancy, as long as they're coming from very healthy soils, from uh, farmers or otherwise cultivators who are very, very intentional in how they've, they've, um, process them. If you're going to use cannabis, I would prefer vaporizing, not in one of those little cartridges, but vaporizing actual flour, dry vaporizing in a, uh, like a volcano, like a, vol uh, a vaporizer bag. That's what I use. Okay. Um, psychedelics, the same, same thing. Like you don't want to be processing these things and creating Delta eight or whatever the hell Frankenstein version of THC there is out there. You should really be trying to use this with, with intention through the right set and setting in order to connect deeper to yourself, to your partner through intimacy or to your baby. Um, we just don't have a lot of data to say otherwise. Now, MDMA, Molly, cocaine, cigarettes, not tobacco, but cigarettes, uh, LSD, they're all super synthetic. They've got a other bunch of other kind of concerns I have there. I would say that's a hard no. But a glass of wine occasionally in pregnancy, sure, why not? If you do feel called to use mushrooms, that's on you. Like We don't have data to say it's good or bad, but I have at least a hundred friends who have all been using cannabis and psychedelics like psilocybin in their pregnancies. 
and it was actually beneficial to their experience, including in our own pregnancy. Okay. Yeah. I loved to hear that <laughs> for my future yeah, self. Uh, ayahuasca is probably okay too. There's a whole community really? in Brazil. Santo Daime. Yeah. They, ayahuasca is their God, essentially their deity. Wow. And they have kids are very, very well connected to the forest. Whether or not they would fit in in our society based on our assessment of what children should do, that's, that's left to be, you know, explored. But it does not seem like their kids are dying in in, in utero. And actually, with cannabis, I should bring this up. There's a randomized control trial of 60 women in Jamaica. 30 were 30 babies were born to users, 30 to non-users. They were all smoking cannabis. This is Jamaica. All um, very poor um, women who were using it on a daily basis versus not at all. And they actually did assessments five years afterwards. And the kids born to the users of cannabis actually were performing slightly better than the non-users. That's not enough to draw a conclusion, but it is to suggest it's probably not going to kill you or your baby. And if it really helps you with symptoms or for any of the other reasons I mentioned, it's you have to weigh the the benefits against the unforeseen risks, if there are any, um, of smoking in in your pregnancy. What about e-cigs? Because that is such a big thing right now and it's nicotine. It's not everything else. But I assume I would say no. I mean, synthetic yeah, category. It's so if it's synthetic, I just don't put it in my body. If it's yeah. been processed or manufactured in some way, it's sort of like eating potato chips versus growing a potato. I mean, it's just not the same. So yeah, yeah. I I would stay away from all the e stuff, even though it is technically a vaporizing practice. What I'm talking about is packing a little cartridge yourself. You say a little blessing. You heat it up to a specific temperature. You maybe even spray a little water, like flower box flower essence on it. You hold it to your head. You say a, a blessing and thank the tobacco, and then or the flower, the flower, the cannabis. Um, maybe you add some damiana or willow or whatever, you know. And you take it in and you honor that that experience for yourself, and you honor the plant for giving itself to you. This is really way beyond like you're just cranking on an e-cigarette all day. Like I just, <laughs> this is not your average user. <laughs> No, no. <laughs> but, but I appreciate it. And it's, you know, I think it's freeing for people to hear that there are more options. And I've been kind of jumping around here because I was talking about what men should or shouldn't do to, you know, improve sperm quality. And then I jumped to what, um, you know, some of your suggestions for women in pregnancy. Um, sure. But there are these differences here because for men and sperm quality, you know, like smoking marijuana at all might be really might impact your sperm quality. Have you seen yeah. evidence that it can Im- actually impact genetic expression or is it more about like for alcohol, mm-hmm. drug use leading up to a pregnancy? Is it more about sperm quality and the ability to actually get pregnant? Well, I think it's important to remember that our genes are not uh, are dictating the terms here. Every environmental exposure is going to get uh, there's going to be some reflection in how the genes are expressed. Every single thing that you put into your body that you're exposed to, your stress levels, everything else. So to say that there's no change to gene expression with cannabis use would be lying. It would be that you don't understand how genes work. Um, So I'm not going to say that, but I haven't, we're also not seeing like major genital or uh, genital. Sorry, I'm looking at my daughter and I just love her. Um, major genetic issues um, as a result of cannabis use. Like we're not seeing kids come out with like crazy defects or missing fingers or anything. I mean, no, no stretch, not even close to that. Okay. Okay. That's good. And, and, and all of this, it's, it's hard. It's like, we don't have a study for everything. 
you know, yeah. it's not easy to like commission a study on absolutely everything that we want to look into, especially natural things. So, you know, we got to weigh what the, the evidence that we do have and then intuition and, you know, go with what feels best. So thank you so much for your time today, this part two. Um, I did want to just ask one final question. I know you touched on some uh, essential nutrients for men. I assume it's going to be similar for women like zinc, magnesium. But are there, for women wanting to get pregnant, are there any supplements that you would suggest? I would say go to nature's multivitamins. I would start there. I, I do have a, a prenatal vitamin that I really love um, because it has adequate amounts of vitamin D, choline, uh, magnesium, folate, not folic acid, folate. Um, that's full well, full well mix. I think they make the best prenatal vitamin on the market. Um, and I have no qualms in promoting them. Um, they're just, uh, they really get it. And you'll see that it's six to eight capsules of their vitamins per day. And people are like, what the hell is that? That's a lot. And I was like, well, that's because they have a lot of nutrition in there. Choline is a huge molecule. So to get as much choline as you need, which by the way, you can get from eggs. Um, it was on my list there of the most important foods. Um, come here, baby. Uh, choline is huge. So in order to get enough of that in the vitamins, you have to have like six to eight vitamins per day. So oh, wow. Yeah, it, it's a lot, but it's if it's your insurance policy. So on top of a healthy lifestyle, and again, the five multivitamins, organ meats, bivalve shellfish, uh, fermented cod liver oil, bone broth, and eggs. If you're eating those, you don't have to worry about your nutrition. Like you've got it all. Unless you, of course, have a, some sort of immune-mediated response to egg protein or something, which you would only know if you were on a... Uh, if you were on like an, an elimination diet, but even if you took eggs out, you're getting so much from those four foods that you probably don't even have to worry about supplementing. Like supplementing to me is like the fine tuning. We have to dial in the, the fundamentals first. Well, you're here with your family. You're on a vacation. So I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else? Hi. It's Ryan. I'm Miss Ryan. Oh, hello. What's your name? I'm Penny. Pammy? Penny. Penny, you Penelope. are oh Penny, you Here. are beautiful. I love your hair. I look at my bracelet. Show, show you may not see. Let's Here see. Oh my gosh! Beautiful bracelets. Did you make those or where'd you get those? Get those. I, I get those at the store. <laughs> oh, good That's fashion cool. sense you have. Yeah. <laughs> Puppy, this is our firstborn. The little one is over oh. there. How how old are you? How old are you? I'm three. You're three. Three? Yeah. Wow. Well, you are a beauty. <laughs> Say thank you. Thank you. <laughs> can tell she has a lot of personality. Definitely. Thank you. She's very spunky, this one. Oh little my sassy. gosh. You're going to have a little co-host soon. No, thank you. To, we're going to have to be, you're going to have to come on my <laughs> podcast. I think that'd be fun. I can tell she's comfortable. Comfortable behind the mic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> do you like to sing? I, I do. Can you sing Yeah? Something? I can tell you're a performer. I'm I wonder what you are. I love I Like a in the sky. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. How I wonder what you are. Woo! Beautiful. 
Okay, I'm wow. gonna put you on. We're gonna finish it and then we'll let play a little bit, okay? Right. Okay. Look at that confidence. All right. Well. Oh, that is was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Oh my gosh! Watch out for her. I know she's Jeez. a uh, little, little something. She's a amazing. powerful person. Yes. Already. Yeah. Already. Wow. I am blown away. Well, that's a beautiful way for us to close this out, but I was going to say, is there anything else about your course or your programs that you would like to share with our audience? Yeah. When is the, when is this episode coming out? It'll come out week after next. Week after next. Okay. So when this episode releases, we'll be right at the end of April. So the course Born Free Method is launching on April, on May 1st. Um, we will be, uh, it's an open enrollment. You come and join anytime you want. You get eight weeks, it's an eight week course. You can take as much time as you'd like with it. Um, a lot of people are taking it before they get pregnant so that they just have it and they have lifetime access. So, um, in addition to the course itself, of course, you're getting modules where you're watching, but you're going to get plenty of exercises, handouts, resources. There's over 250 citations at this point. Um, so plenty of sort of like lifetime, lifetime worth of reading there. Um, you're also going to be getting 12 weeks, uh, 12 months, excuse me, of weekly calls with me and Sarah Rosser, who's one of the farm midwives in Tennessee. So there's no other course offering that, uh, nor is there any other course going as deep into the literature and also simultaneously treating pregnancy as a spiritual process as much as it is a uh, physiologic process. So you can find everything at Born Free Method. You'll find all sorts of extra bonuses and goodies if you go there. And if you have any questions, people can just reach out to me through my website, which is belovedholistics.com, or you could just go to Born Free Method. There's there's ways to do it. But I bring up Beloved Holistics because that's my practice website. That's where you'll find my fertility program as well as my pregnancy and postpartum support services. So, and um, and Ryan, thank you for having me. It's been a, a real pleasure to see you. We would love to do more if, if possible in the future. Thank you so much for your time and make sure to follow Nathan on Instagram, which is Nathan, Nathan Riley. Ryan. Yeah, you it's Nathan Riley, OBGYN, Instagram and TikTok. Perfect. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you.